Recovery Elevator, episode 153. I was putting other people's lives in danger as well as my own, and I really, really needed help. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,222 days. More impressive, also on this tracker, it says productivity hours gained, 407. That's nearly 17 days back in my life. How crazy is that? On today's podcast, we've got Zoe. She's been sober for seven months at the time of the recording. She's from Louisville, or maybe Louisville, Kentucky, and it's a great interview. Let's talk about one of the wonders of the world. This is going to be Machu Picchu, located in the Southern Hemisphere, Peru. We've got the Retreat of a Lifetime scheduled in October. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Peru for more details. There's an awesome crew already going down there. A lot of people went to the retreat in Bozeman. We've got 17 people signed up. Spaces are limited. It's going to be an awesome trip. Okay, let's get started. I want to talk to you guys about a common phrase heard in 12-step rooms that says, half measures availed us nothing. I want to talk about this phrase and see if it's really true. Do half measures, do half-assed attempts really avail us nothing, or do we somehow see some traction in sobriety? So, half measures avail us nothing. Unless this is a harm reduction strategy and we pour half as much vodka as we intended to drink, well, I stand corrected. That actually would work. But when it comes to recovery, usually half measures avail us nothing. But like I said, let's explore this phrase a little bit more. Half measures availed us nothing, otherwise known as the newcomer's least favorite thing to hear. Luckily for me, the host of the Recovery Elevator podcast, I do everything 110%, so I never encountered this problem. I'm just kidding. As I look back, I had hundreds of feeble half-assed, half-measured attempts at quitting drinking. Although I did learn a lot from those half-measured attempts, none of them resulted in long-term sobriety. It wasn't until I said, fine, I'm going to do the things I really don't want to do, did I have a chance in sobriety. Now, some of these things included reverse interventions with my friends, my family. I told them how serious my drinking really was. I got honest with myself and got honest with them. I also got a sponsor. I filled a notebook up with my fourth step by directions from my sponsor. I even started a podcast and so much more. Now, I want to be clear. The majority of people, including myself, begin their journey into sobriety with a bunch of half-measure steps. I've only met a few people who've got the recovery thing on their first try, and those are the ones who start out doing, well, what's more than a half-step? They start out doing full steps. Yeah, they dive in 100%. But if you're doing half-steps, don't beat yourself up. That still is a progression into sobriety. Like I said, that's exactly how mine started. So like I said, this phrase is commonly heard in 12-step meetings, and most of the time it refers to not working the steps, especially steps 4, 5, and 9. But I want to apply this phrase to recovery in general. But first I want to say that AA, saying that half measures availed is nothing. This sentence, and another one that says, there are such unfortunates, they are not at fault, they seem to have been born that way. Okay. I heart AA, but I don't like these two lines. It's basically saying, if AA doesn't work for you, then you half measured this program, aka your fault, or you were born a degenerate, naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. 
Again, I'm a big fan of 12-step programs, but I don't like these lines because it says, look, if you don't get sober, not the program, it's your fault. So if you have been to an AA meeting, this is something you hear at the beginning of each meeting when someone volunteers or is asked to read pages 58, 59, and the first half of page 60, which is how it works. On the top part of page 59, it says, half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. Now let's take a look at turning point. I do agree that there's a turning point in everyone's recovery and everyone's drinking careers. And this is where some people get it and some people don't. That's why there's that stat. There's about 20 million Americans that need help in their addiction, but roughly around five to 8% only get help. There's a lot of people that reach this turning point, but they don't turn. They just keep going on what they're doing. So this turning point, it's a crossroads in recovery for a lot of people. And man, I wish we could play the Bone Thugs and Harmony song Crossroads, but thank you ASCAP and the BMI licensing services for songs, that's just not possible. So why is this such a contentious and confusing saying in recovery? If I half-assed my attempts on the treadmill at the gym, I'd still get some results, right? So 50% of efforts in the gym should yield about 50% results. But in the recovery world, 50% of efforts yields 0% results, is what the program says. And let's apply this thinking to the podcast. If I half measured my efforts with this podcast, I'd still have a podcast to upload to iTunes. It'd be a shitty podcast, but I'd still have a podcast. So why is it with recovery that half measures availed us nothing? Well, recovery is confusing. What I have concluded after doing 153 straight weeks of the Recovery Elevator podcast is that two plus two in recovery does not equal four. It doesn't even equal a number like six or eight. 2 plus 2 in recovery equals Atlanta. Yeah, f***ing Atlanta. Now, for most of us, we do have data in our past. All we have to do is think that half measures do avail us nothing. Take a moment to think back on those attempts to control your drinking. That's what I'm going to do right now. I'm thinking of the time I had a calendar taped inside my door when I was going to grad school at University of Washington where I would allow myself to drink only three nights per week. I'd put an X on the nights that I drank. I'm only drinking three out of the four nights. Not bad, right? Well, what happened was I started to double up the nights. I'd go six in a row. Then I went nine in a row. Then I'd say, okay, if I go nine in a row, then I have to go 12 days off. Okay, I can do this, Paul. But guess what? That plan failed just like a whole bunch of other plans that I had to moderate my drinking. Those half-assed measures, those really did yield me nothing. So it kind of boils down to alcoholism cannot be defeated while alcohol is still being used with these half-assed measures of moderation. So only drinking part of the time, for example, three days out of a seven-day week, is the same as drinking all the time. I feel that half measures available as nothing is mostly referring to action, correct, but it also refers to honesty. And there's a lot of half-assed measures I took with myself that I wasn't fully honest with myself, my family, with physicians and other people around me. Half measures of honesty also availed me nothing. So no matter where you're at in your journey, ask yourself a question. Are you doing half measures? And guess what? If you are, don't beat yourself up because that's how nearly everyone starts, including myself. So I think these half measures, they are imperative because these half measures are the building blocks of how we eventually reach long-term sobriety. It's these half measures, these hundreds of failed drinking attempts, these hundreds of failed quits, these restarts, these relapses for myself. It's these half measures where I learn the valuable lessons that I'm able to apply in recovery today.
So again, I do feel that half measures do avail us nothing when we are trying to achieve a long-term recovery. But if you compile all these half-assed measures, then it adds up to a bunch of valuable lessons. Okay, and before I continue to babble on too much and turn this into a half-assed measure podcast episode, let's hear from Cafe RE and then let's hear from Zoe. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Zoe, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Zoe, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober for a little over seven months. On uh, January 1st, I had made my seven months of sobriety. Nice job. And I asked you earlier, so you said June 1st, 2017 was your sobriety date. Let me ask you, was was that a rock bottom moment? Did something happen or what what spurred you into sobriety? Yeah, I want to say that was probably for me, that was my rock bottom day. The day prior to that, May 31st, I had actually gotten into a car accident that was caused by me while I was under the influence and woke up on June 1st and didn't remember the accident hardly at all. And once it kind of started coming back to me in pieces here and there as I woke up and got moving, I realized that there was a more serious problem than just me going out and binge drinking like I was putting other people's lives in danger as well as my own. And I really, really needed help. Wow. Now, did you wake up in a hospital or did you wake up in the car? No, I actually somehow that night managed to get home. I am married, and my husband was able to come up to the scene of the accident and talk to the police for me. And in just bits and pieces of what I remember of the accident, I was just hysterical. I couldn't pull it together enough to even have a conversation with the people that I had had an accident with or the police, and I just cried and cried and cried. And somehow the police had actually left me alone completely, and I managed to walk away from that without a DUI. Oh, wow. Well, that's that's a little piece of good news there. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, sometimes it takes these incredibly painful moments and these eye-opener moments, and it sounds like you didn't just sweep it under the rug and you made a significant life change, hence the, the seven months of sobriety. So nice job with that, Zoe. And let's let's back Thank it up you. a little bit. Um, actually skip to question. Give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you? You just said you're married. And uh, yeah, what do you like to do for fun, Zoe? Sure. I'm 23. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I actually work for a freight facility here in Kentucky. And for fun, I'm still kind of like learning what I like to do. Really, I've gotten to the point where I enjoy going out with friends. Again, sober friends. <laughs> I have dogs, so I really enjoy spending time with my dogs. I like to read. I like music. I like to cook. Uh, just small little things that I realize that I guess these are things that I enjoy doing that I never even realized. 
Yeah, and, and maybe describe your drinking habits for us a bit. And did you ever put any rules in place to moderate or to control your drinking, such as, like, I'm only drinking on the weekends or I'm only drinking after work, stuff like that? Yeah, I, unfortunately, I did that more than I would like to admit, but I did a lot of switching types of drinks. I had this crazy idea one time that uh, I was a really big beer drinker, and I had this crazy idea of you're only an alcoholic based on, like, how much you drink. So maybe if I drink <laughs> liquor only, <laughs> I won't need as much. I'll only need five drinks instead of 12 beers. I did things like that. I also went through this weird period where I had drank so much beer that I gained, like, 25 pounds. And I thought that maybe if I had dedicated myself to going to the gym for every mile I ran, I earned a drink. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> just bizarre, bizarre ideas like that, just trying to moderate in any form that I possibly could, and it never worked. And, and Zoe, did it take that car accident to have that wake-up call? Or were there, were there leading signs, you know, writing on the wall that, okay, you know, maybe I'm drinking a lot? And those plans that you put into place, those are definitely indicators to me that, okay, we might have, you know, a drinking issue here. But sometimes the, that isn't so clear to see when you're in the moment. Um, you know, were there signs leading up to that car accident that you might need to quit drinking? Yeah, there were many. I Like I had said, I'm married, and my husband had kind of gotten to a point where he was afraid to be around me. Hmm. And he was very vocal about it, too. Unfortunately, uh, things have gotten better since. But he would come home from work after working 16 hours, and I would be like, why, why have you been gone so long? I know your shift didn't last that long. And he'd say, well, I was afraid to come home because I didn't know what you were going to be like today. Hmm. And things along those lines, I mean, just... I would drunkenly have conversations with people saying, well, I know I'm an alcoholic. I'm functioning, though, so it's okay. <laughs> like, I do recall bits and pieces of conversations with people like that where I almost thought it was a joke. And unfortunately, it was not a joke, and it was something that could have ended up taking my life. Yeah, it's, it's funny how we legitimize it in our own heads. I know when I was, you know, when I owned a bar in Spain, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I was, I was a normal drinker, but I was hanging out with people who were extremely heavy drinkers, including myself. And, you know, looking back, none of that stuff was normal and a huge change needed to happen. Unfortunately, I didn't quit drinking right when I got back from Spain. I tried a couple of geographical cures. The pain got more intense. Um, you get, you get the point. And, and so, you know, tell me, was this your first attempt to quit drinking after the car accident or did you, did you have some attempts before? What was that? What was that journey like for you? Well, I, I think kind of subconsciously had tried to get sober before. One time, I had kind of like a drunken meltdown whenever I lived in a different state and uh, wound up in a psychiatric hospital claiming that I was crazy. And the doctors had basically told me that I had personality disorders and it put me on these medications, not really knowing that I had this really dark drinking problem too. And my excuse was, well, I can't drink anymore because I'm on these medications. And that only lasted for five days. <laughs> so I did try, I think, somehow to convince myself, like, well, if I'm going to get better, I've got to treat the problem at hand, which was me being psychologically nuts instead of treating the alcoholism. And in turn, it just wound, it led me right back to a drink faster than I thought it would. You mentioned you, uh, you know, during that time you had a, a drinking problem. Did you did you not tell the doctors, or were you, uh, you know, were you not uh, come transparent about them? And I, 
and I've been many times in front of a physician, you know, a couple, about four or five years ago, and they'd say, how much do you drink? I'm like, yeah, you know, not very much. Um, did they have no idea how much you were drinking? Uh, yeah, they had no idea. Um, they knew whenever I had gone to the psychiatric unit at the emergency room that I had been drinking the night before, but I was very, very uh, adamant about I did not have a drinking problem, that I had something else wrong with me. And the doctors continuously brought it up, you know, I mean, Usually these things kind of go hand in hand, and I think that they saw it way before I did. But unfortunately, you can't convince an alcoholic that they're an alcoholic until they want to believe it themselves. So they kind of just let it ride. Yeah, that there was a, a big value bomb dropped at right around eight minutes in this interview. You can't convince <laughs> someone they're an alcoholic unless they believe it themselves. Uh, you know, that's you know, sometimes the point of an intervention is to try to pound this into somebody's head that they are an alcoholic, but eventually it's only them. And what I've learned that these interventions, um, if, if, if someone's ever tried one on you, uh, all it can do is really speed up the process. And, you know, what I found the reverse intervention is where we, the, the alcoholics, we actually sit people down and tell them how, how severe the problem is. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier that uh, you didn't want to look at the alcohol as being the problem. Like you sat there in a psychiatric ward, talked with the doctors, and alcohol, you didn't tell them about that. And I understand 100% about that. In fact, I'm still kind of uh, sweeping up my side of the street with that almost three years, uh, with almost three years of sobriety. I just finished my ADD med taper for the second time. Yeah, and I remember going into the doctor four or five years ago, talking to him about my focus. And I've always had ADD traits, and that's just part of my personality. But yeah, it, it never was it like, hey, doc, I think I'm hungover. It was, no, I can't focus. But it was because I was hungover. So I understand that 100%. And you know, let's talk about your age for a second here, Zoe. I, I'm incredibly envious that you're 23 and going through this journey. You might be saying, like, what the hell are you talking about, Paul? <laughs> but, you know, I, I, a good chunk of my 20s, sure, there were some fun times in there, but a good chunk of it was this deep self-exploration where alcohol really wasn't even considered in that. You know, but looking back, alcohol was the problem 100%. And so, A, you've got a jump start on that. And, but B, you know, talk to me about your age, 23. I know you're married, so that, you know, socially that might, you know, pivot things a little bit. But it's got to be tough getting sober at such a young age. When I was that age, everybody was drinking, including myself. And so what's that like for you? It's different. I mean, I pretty much, the way that I can sum it up is that I think that I had enough pain in the, like, six to seven years that I was drinking and using drugs that it would account for 20 years of pain, in my opinion. That is how I felt whenever I decided to get sober, is that just I had had enough. It didn't matter about my age. I had felt enough pain. I had cried enough tears, and I had hurt enough people in such a short amount of time that if I had went on any longer, I don't know what I would have left. And being my age, I guess socially, I have had to distance myself from a lot of the people in my life. I mean, whenever I was out drinking and using drugs, I did hang out with people my age and people that were into the things that I was into. And as soon as I got sober and got out of the hospital where I had went to treatment, I basically had to make a complete change in people, places, and things. I just like wiped all of that out. And as painful as it was to have to kind of like exile those people out of my life, I don't think I would stay sober if I didn't do that. And Zoe, tell me a little bit more about that process because this doesn't matter if you're 23, 13, 33, 43, whatever your age. You, when you get sober, 
you're probably going to have to, in your words, exile some people from your life, get rid of a, some toxic relationships that need to be eliminated anyways. And this is the transparency that sobriety can give us, but B there are probably some unhealthy relationships that aren't conducive to sobriety. So what was that process like for you? And how did you determine, you know, a, like who makes the healthy list and who doesn't? Yeah. Well, a lot of it was based on what were my motives for hanging out with these people. I had to really look at what did we do when we were together? Did we actually sit around and have meaningful conversations and were we concerned with each other's lives or were we just hanging out because we knew it was going to be easy to convince the other one to go to the bar? That was a lot of where I had to pick and choose like, okay, I know I've had a friendship with this person in the past and maybe it was somewhat meaningful while we were intoxicated, but was it because of the alcohol that I found these people so easy to be around? And unfortunately, like 99% of the people in my life fell in that category where it was just easier to go to the bar with you than to sit around and have an actual conversation. So I had quit my job. I basically distanced myself from everybody that I knew. And I put myself headfirst into my sobriety because I knew that if I didn't get sober and stay sober, then like none of that would ever come back. I would never be able to have those friends. I would never be able to have a good job. I would never be able to have meaningful relationships with people because I was not like maintaining my sobriety. Yeah, it sounds like you've kind of realized the the you know the one hundred and one of what sobriety gives us. Like you, you mentioned, you're never going to have meaningful relationships, never have a good job um, without sobriety. And I fought that for a long time. I was fighting. I could have both. I could drink moderately, and I could have this. And, and finally, I still have this quote. I made it up and it's not even very, very eloquent, quote, but it's still typed up and printed at my home is if you want this, then you can't have that. This refers to alcohol. If you want the alcohol, then you can't have that, that referring to a happy life and having all those things, what you just mentioned. And then the flip side, if you want that, then you can't have this, you can't have the drinking. And it's, it's kind of that simple is black and white in my life. And it sounds like it's the same for your life. And after doing a lot of these interviews, it's, it's the same thing. If, if you want a happy life, there's no room for alcohol in it. And like I mentioned earlier, it's so cool at age 23 that you've recognized that. And I'm sure it has not been easy, but you've got a lot of life in front of you. And, and so do I. We, a lot of everybody who's listening does. It doesn't matter what age you are in this journey. But let's talk more about that journey. You said, did you go to inpatient treatment, outpatient treatment? And you know, how, how did you get sober? I actually did both. On June 21st, I had checked myself into a detox. I spent six days uh, doing a detox program and then in the same facility whenever I was released from detox I did five weeks of an intensive outpatient program uh, I was six days a week for five weeks four hours for four or five hours a day oh, wow. and that was like my life for the first month and a half or so of my sobriety was just like treatment 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 I had to stay involved in that because it was really easy for me to get distracted with the things going on in my life did you say you went to a detox center on June 21st? Is that 20 days after your last drink? No, no, I'm sorry. June 1st. Oh, okay. 2017. Gotcha. <laughs> June 1st. Okay. <laughs> a couple questions were raised there, but, uh, apologize about no, that. <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, and, uh, you know, in fact, I actually, I think the third podcast interview I've ever, I did was with a gentleman named Paul. I'm looking at my sheet. I think he's had like 20, 20 something years of sobriety. He said he went to, he went to rehab six months. He was on a waiting list, I think for six months before he went in to sobriety. So 
um, you know, there's, it does not like day one, you got to be in rehab and, uh, you know, it's interesting. And so tell me what, tell me what outpatient treatment was like. I know a lot of people have questions who are listening right now. It was very beneficial in my opinion. I was one of those people that had to be like physically removed from the situation. I don't think that I would have been able to get sober and stay sober at home without, uh, some kind of treatment. So I proceeded with that five weeks. It was a lot of talking about the disease concept of alcoholism, teaching us the history basically of alcoholism, and then helping us decide for ourselves whether or not we thought that this was our problem and whether to proceed with treatment after we had gotten out of treatment, basically, as far as like a 12-step program or, you know, AA, Narcotics Anonymous, any of those programs. It helped us kind of figure out where we belonged and what would help best. Now, I'm interested to hear your take on this. You just mentioned they talked about the disease concept, the history about it. Yeah, it, Give us some things that you learned, and what's your point of view on it? The disease concept, in my mind, I think is very, it's very helpful to know that I actually have a disease and that there is a treatment for it, especially considering my past with having to go to doctors and people prescribing me medication and saying that I have all these personality problems and you're bipolar and you're depressed and you're anxious and all of these things that are usually treatable with um, medication. And I've always, my entire life, had to have someone tell me what was wrong with me via like a doctor's prescription pad, basically. And it helped me to know that this too was a disease and it kind of just summed up everything that I've ever felt wrong in my entire life. I've always kind of felt like I just had this gaping, empty hole that I didn't know how to fill. And whenever I had decided to get sober and did research into 12-step programs, I had found out that this is why I feel like this. <laughs> There's a reason, and I'm not the only person in the world that feels like this, and not everything has to come from a doctor. There are some things that you can decide for yourself, and alcoholism is definitely one of them. And I recall when I finally embraced that, there's a huge now what question that needs to be answered after that. But like you mentioned, you know, there was a, there was always this big gaping hole that I was filling with alcohol. Um, and it was it was somewhat liberating. Like, uh, finally, I understand what's going on. It's, it's the alcohol is the problem, not this other laundry list of, of, of issues that you're right. Doctors are prescribing you know, quick fixes, quick you know, treatments and things like that for it. And so, you know, once you did get to that point and you say, now what? And what has your recovery looked like after that? Walk us through a day in your life of recovery of Zoe. I wake up every day. I drink a cup of coffee and I let my dogs run around and I say my prayers and do my meditations like my sponsor wants me to do. Those usually consist of, I mean, I've downloaded apps on my phone that just help me clear my head for 10 minutes to teach me how to breathe and I know that meditation is really like confusing and scary for some people, but I've found that it really helps me. I have a lot of racing thoughts, even in sobriety, so that helps kind of calm that down a little. And I try to make it to an AA meeting every night, if not every other night. I talk to people in my support group. I reach out to other people whenever I need help because it seems like I need help like every day with something different. Mm -hmm. Like getting sober doesn't just fix all of the problems. They're are going to be more problems. And then for that, there are people that can help me through it. So I try to stay connected as much as I can. 
Can you talk to me more about the stay connected part and how important that's been to your recovery. You mentioned you go to a meeting every night, every other night. A lot of that is just staying connected with the group and other like-minded individuals. And tell us how important that's been for you. It's been incredibly important for me because I feel like in my sobriety, I've almost had a lot more painful things happen to me sober than I did whenever I was still out drinking and using. And it's good to know whenever I go into a room of like-minded people that even though we're all sitting here sober, we are all still having problems. And there are people that will help you work through these problems. Like getting sober isn't going to fix everything in your life. Like getting sober is a very small, deep, very, very small little like detail in a great big problem. And my problem is me. And it, it's good to know and go and reach out to other people who feel the exact same way. That way I know that whenever I'm going through something really hard, that there's someone else that's been there through it too. And they might have some really good advice to give me to help me stay somewhat sane while dealing with that problem. Yeah, you mentioned in an email you sent to me that you lost your grandmother to cancer. I'm sorry to hear about that. And you were 39 oh, days sober at the moment. I know she was very close in your life. Tell us more about that and, and how you made it through sober. Yeah, that was a really difficult part of my life. I actually lived in Louisiana for a year and a half. I moved in 2015, and I moved back to Louisville in 2016. And uh, five days before I had actually moved back to Louisville, my grandmother had found out that she had been diagnosed with cancer. And unfortunately, she had beat it two times before, and it came back. And the doctors had given her six months to two years to live, and 39 days into my sobriety on July 9th of 2017, she died. And I was at work when I got a phone call that she wasn't doing very well. I rushed to her house, obviously sat with my family. My grandmother was like my mom. She had raised me from the time that I was born, basically. And it was just very difficult to have to wrap my brain around like she was my rock. And how am I going to do life without her? And she had told me right before she died that she did not want to be a trigger for me. And anybody who is an alcoholic knows that there are plenty of triggers, like stubbing my toe is a trigger sometimes. Yeah, there's a couple but, of them out there. But I reminded myself that, like, this cannot be the end of my sobriety. I wholeheartedly believe that you have to get sober for yourself. You can't get sober for other people, but at that point, it was an obligation for me to stay sober because I did not want to disappoint her and my grandfather, who is still alive, and that was enough to get me through the beginning grieving period of that was that I've got to stay sober so I can handle this. Um, I've got to stay sober so I can be there for the people that need me, and on top of that, whenever I decided to get sober, I was also very, very suicidal. And I knew that if I did not stay sober through this, that I might not come out on the other side of life, too. Mm -hmm. I might end up taking my own life if I were to succumb back into my disease. So I pushed through. I reached out to everybody that I knew. I went to meetings. I talked to people. I saw doctors. I read. <laughs> I read and read and read things about grieving and dealing with grief and alcoholism and all of these different articles and stuff to just fill time almost. And that was enough to just get me past that point of really severe grieving so I could get a grasp on what was going on and then move forward from there. So when life happens, and I'm talking about just unfortunate events in life, it just happens. And it doesn't happen to us. It just happens. And I feel like in sobriety with each flat tire, which each with each 
you know, negative emotion with each, you know, somebody passing in life, it's an opportunity. I know it's hard to look at it like that, but it's an opportunity to build our coping mechanisms, which have been completely destroyed with, with our drinking. And it sounds like you had a great opportunity to not drink through something difficult. And you did just that. And, you know, how do you feel like your coping skills have improved over the last six months, seven months? My coping skills have probably improved because I've, I don't just jump to conclusions like I used to. Like I was very, very good at, I want to say, you know, uh, so I, I hear that something bad is going to happen and I run and drink. Or I get this crazy idea up in my head about something that could possibly happen and it stresses me out to the point that I want to drink or use drugs. And I've gotten to the point now where I sit down and I think about, like, is this really worth it? Is this worth my sobriety? This probably is not as big of a deal as I think it is. And then assess each situation accordingly from there, because most things that go on in my head are not near as big of a deal as I want to make them out to be. Yeah, it sounds like you're able to cognitively just think about the issue at hand and and, you know, a lot in my mind oftentimes goes to worst case scenario, but I'm able in sobriety to bring it back and look at it through almost a separated perspective and just say, look, this is really not that big of a deal. And there's a data of evidence behind me now in sobriety that it's like, look, I've gotten through this, I've gotten through that without a drink, and I'm going to get through this without a drink as well. And it sounds like you're doing the same thing. So nice job with that, Zoe. And let's talk about cravings before we get to the rapid fire round. Have you had any cravings in the last seven months of sobriety? And what do you do when they come? I actually have not really had any physical cravings, I want to say. Maybe mental, yeah. I had a surgery done where I had my wisdom teeth cut out whenever I was three months sober. And I want to say that uh, the idea of having pain medication in my grasp basically was almost more painful than any kind of like physical cravings that I felt. Um, knowing that, you know, if it's there, I want it. If, if, or if I want it, it's there. Sorry. But um, it's, it's more of like just using the tools that I've been given to stay sober. I mean, as far as a physical craving, I don't think I've had any, but uh, mentally it's not always easy. Yeah, I agree hundred percent with that. It, it's mentally, it's, it's not always easy, but for me, the best tool that I utilize all the time is just to follow the drink, play the tape forward, tell myself, look, Paul, what's really going to happen if we have that Corona, that seems like such a good idea on a hot right. summer day. And that's usually a dumpster fire that entails when my mind can actually think about what will really happen. And Zoe, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Yes, I am. All righty. Number one, Zoe, what was your worst memory from drinking? Uh, my worst memory from drinking was probably a night that I had obviously had too much to drink and became very suicidal and was chasing my husband and myself around the house with a knife and kind of like butchered my wrists up and my husband had to lock the set of knives in his truck overnight until I sobered mm. up and could gather myself. <laughs> yeah. And the next question, we've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you really couldn't control your drinking? I want to say my oh shit moment was probably the day that my husband had first come home and said that he was afraid to be around me. Um, I never had thought it had gotten that bad or that maybe one day, uh, it'll just kind of stop on its own, but it had gone to the point that people were like fearful of being in my presence. And Zoe, 
with a little over seven months of sobriety. What's your plan moving forward? My plan moving forward is to continue doing what I do every day, which is stay in touch with other people. I stay in touch with my sponsor and I stay in touch with myself. I know whatever's going through my head, there's probably a solution to it. And to not give in and hit the F it button and just continue what I'm doing. And Zoe, what's your favorite resource in recovery? Uh, my favorite resource in recovery is probably the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, perennially a top 20 best seller. There are definitely some nuggets of wisdom inside of that big book. I've got it within about six feet of me right now. I agree with that. <laughs> um, and next question, in regards to sobriety, Zoe, what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I had ever received was probably whenever times get hard, you could either A, hit the F it button. Somebody in treatment had told me this. A, hit the F it button and go out and drink. Or B, choose the harder alternative and fight what you're going through head on. And he told me that he always wanted me to choose the harder situation. Uh, fighting it head on right in the front center instead of going left and right running away. That's always difficult to do, but you're right. That's, that's where the solution lies. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Thinking about getting sober is go with your gut. I know for a really long time that I thought that I might have a problem with alcohol and that, you know, maybe one day magically this problem will just go away on its own or I'll just deal with it whenever the time comes. But somebody had always told me that you can put your shovel down whenever you want. You don't have to keep digging your hole deeper and deeper. So whenever you decide is your bottom, that's your bottom. You don't have to make it the worst thing, losing homes and friends and family. Uh, you can decide when you're done. Zoe, before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if fine. You might be an alcoholic if you have a very hard time choosing between a happy and sober life or a painfully alcoholic death. Because I know that that was a very, very uh, tough question for me to answer. I had someone ask me that. And I feel like only a real alcoholic, a true alcoholic, would have a hard time picking between life and death if that meant alcohol is involved. Yeah, no kidding on that one. You, you, you make it so black and white, and you're like, uh, obviously the happy life, but when alcohol is muddled in there, it makes things a lot more obscure. So I like that one a lot. Zoe, thank you so much for joining us on the Recovery Elevator podcast. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thank you. One of the topics that I consistently see posted in Cafe RE is if people has experience using such pills such as Camperol, Naltrexone, and Anabuse. And that's exactly what I'm going to cover in next podcast episode. So, Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Uh -huh.